I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello, friends. As you are listening to this episode with Miranda Wilkinson, I am currently in Peru. So I had to pre-record everything before my trip. Uh, I hope it's still relevant and in date. This interview was actually recorded back in May 2021, so a few months ago. It's now October, and even still, my views on things have changed um, slightly, a little bit, in the in the past couple of months. Um, so I wanted to address some of those changes as I've been thinking about processing through all of the exploitative and problematic systemic issues within conservation industry. And this really came from a desire to bring to light some of the stories that the lonely conservationists have um, shared. I've shared my stories on the blog. Um, Jesse Panizolo has just provided such a great community for people to express their struggles and their stories within conservation work, um, whether you're a full-time career conservationist or just do it as a hobby all the ab abuse and problems within our industry. I've really had my eyes opened a lot more to as I'm as I'm reading more of these stories. So I'm slowly but surely begun to realize that true equity will not happen as long as we're constantly and I'm guilty of this accepting positions that do not pay or abuse and exploit their workers. I used to kind of think like we just need to suck it up. Conservation has no money. So as long as you can afford to work for free, like what's the big deal? Um, and and now I'm <laughs> seeing the error of my ways because I do, I do get it from the nonprofit's point of view. Like they don't have any money either and their organization leaders aren't making money either. But yet it promotes this culture, it promotes this systemic trickle-down effect of abusing workers and paying next to nothing and having these just horrible conditions where you have to volunteer or sometimes even pay to work for years and years in order to just get one job in the industry. And guess who that benefits? The <laughs> white people, generally, privileged people, and people of higher socioeconomic status. So I, being in my privileged position, still have yet to recognize some of these issues. And I'm, I'm so grateful for people who have called me in, um, who have, you know, through their stories, through kindness, through generosity, shared why these injustices cannot keep existing in our workforce. Because I am a white person. I have privilege. I'm a higher socioeconomic class. I am cis, hetero, and I have an able body. I'm able to do this work. People who do not fit within that mold cannot do this work. And that's where the inequality comes into place. So in order to make conservation this beautiful, open, biodiverse, welcoming community, 
we need to be respectful and mindful of those things. So, and even in this episode, I, in my naivety, I imply that sometimes being a member of a marginal group might be a good thing because there are companies wanting diversity, but that again is kind of laughable now, looking back, points out my privilege and lack of awareness. It's just like a little tiny blip in our conversation. I thought about just cutting it out, but otherwise, how are we going to learn and grow and change? So, um, I'm, I'm sharing with you my falls and my trips and my slips as we grow and learn from each other and hopefully make the world a more beautiful, truly inclusive, um, collaborative environment for us all to live in, thrive, and have our, have our stories heard, whatever background or historically oppressed group you come from. And, you know, sometimes I think I talk too much and I just need to shut up and let other people have a voice and elevate their voice. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do through the podcast. So all that to say, I hope you enjoy um, my conversation with Miranda Wilkinson. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, This is Laura Marsh and we have Miranda Wilkinson here on Nova Conversations. Hi, Miranda. How are you? I'm good, Laura. How are you doing today? I am good, except for the fact that my little baby just projectile vomited all over the car seat this morning and smells like sour milk. Oh, (laughs) that's a great way to start a morning. (laughs) Yeah. So we're all working from home today, but that's okay. Um, What did you do this morning? You were on the field, right? Yes. Yeah. So I actually helped uh, lead some prescribed burning we have going on uh, where I work at the Jones Center at Itchaway here in South Georgia. Uh, and so we burned about 200 acres this morning and I helped with that until I came in for lunch and, uh, to hop on here with you. So it was pretty fun. It burned really, really well. It's, uh, we went about 36 days without rain. Uh, and then we had one night of rain two days ago. And so we kind of are trying to burn what we can while we still have a little bit of moisture on the ground. Oh, wow. Yeah. Burning is something I know very little about. So maybe at some point we could talk about burning and stuff, but before we get into all of that, I want to hear your, like kind of a little bit about your background, um, what you do and your favorite field experience and your favorite story, like the story as if someone's at a party and you say, I'm a biologist and they're, they want to hear like, they seem so interested. What's the story or stories you want to share? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned previously, currently I'm working at the Jones Center at Itchway. Uh, I'm a conservation fellow here. So I actually am working full time with them here as a conservation staff member. And then they're paying for my master's through the University of Florida. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, kind of been a dream job for me. I, it, the only downfall is I'm doing a non-thesis track because I'm away from campus uh, so that, but it's kind of been, we've been able to work with it. Some I'm actually working on like a peer reviewed paper now, even without the thesis. And so we've been working on that, but before that, um, I guess I can start, I, I got my bachelor's in wildlife, natural resource management, uh, in 2018 from a little <laughs> agricultural school in South Georgia called Abraham Baldwin agricultural college. We call it ABAC. Uh, but I got my, my, uh, bachelor's from there and, my last semester of that of my senior year, I went and did a poster presentation on uh, a project I did with loggerhead shrikes. 
um, and looking at territory mapping in South Georgia with them because they're a species of concern in Georgia. And while I was there, a couple uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resource uh, employees were at the conference and saw my presentation. And the next week I got a phone call asking if I wanted to work uh, with them part time after I graduated. Uh, so it was like a 30 hour a week or 29 hour a week uh, position that way they don't have to give you benefits and all that but uh but it was a perfect like little beginning job with that and so I worked that for about four months and I was going to work it longer and then I had applied for some random jobs here and there and hadn't really heard back for like some summer stuff just because I was curious about trying to travel a little bit and then I heard back from one job and uh, I actually hadn't even applied to her position. I had applied to some to her roommate's position and he had forwarded my resume onto her. And uh, she called me up and asked me if I wanted to work with her doing some cuckoo work uh, <laughs> over the summer. And that was where I met you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we worked on that yellow build cuckoo project together for three months. And then I came back and my boss at the DNR agency, he really, really liked me. Uh, and so he had somehow managed to keep that position open that I was in while I was gone. And so I just hopped right back into the same position and worked that for about six more months. And then I started here in January of 2020. Um, and I've been here for about a year, almost a year and a half, or a little over a year and a half now, I guess, right at it. Yeah, wow, okay. So that was a lot. Uh, yes, sorry. I forgot, no, 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 that's good. I just wanna back up a little bit because I, I wanna go through all the steps and processes yes. Yes. to where you are. So I forgot you worked with loggerhead trikes. Um, really quick, tell me about the field work you did with them and then yes. why you decided to present a poster um and how i don't know just like that process of getting started. yeah yeah so we have we have a very intense like senior capstone uh prep class that we have to do at abac uh for to in order to graduate with our wildlife degree and you have to do some sort you either have to do a land management plan so if you want to go into like working at like a a uh, hunting uh, facility or anything like that. You could just do like an easy like land, it's not easy, but uh, a smaller scale land management uh, project. And then if not, you have to do like a thesis-esque type uh, project, kind of a miniature version of a master's. You just don't, you only get like maybe a semester worth of data and then you kind of make a presentation on that and you have to present that at the end of your class. And so uh, we actually had some DNR folks that were interested in finding out more information on our loggerhead strike populations in Southwest Georgia, because we have like an unusually high number of loggerhead strikes in the area. So I didn't actually get to do any hands-on stuff with them at the time. We were gonna put on uh, transmitters, but we, it was just gonna be not, there wasn't enough time in one semester to get all of that done. Right. So I did a territory study and went around and I drove every single road within the county that I lived in, Tift County at the time. I drove every single road uh, for three or four months it took and I recorded all loggerhead strike sightings. I did it twice. And then I also went back to each site. I had loggerhead strike sightings and did like an occupational um, uh, study to look at like how, 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 often, how often they're detected. Okay. So just to see how high my detection rates were. And so um, after that, th we had to do a presentation anyway. So I made a poster because we had a wildlife society conference nearby and I went ahead and post er, presented it there. And I also went to Boston and presented it at a collegiate honors conference. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah, what so I'm hearing is just you just jumping right in. Like you yeah. in six yeah. months and in, in the course of a semester, you have this kind of mini thesis project and you're just doing all the things which is yes yeah it, it I that's the one advice I always give someone in this field is like any opportunity you get whether it like might seem small or anything like that if you can like go help out with somebody when they're doing this or this or I know it can be annoying at times but that, that's like 
my, that was like the bread and butter that like got me into the field. I went out with people and learned different things, even if it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. And I think just like jumping in head first, if you can, if you have the uh, ability to, uh, is like super important here. Cause like, I didn't really care about birds until I went and helped out with a maps banding station. And the moment we caught our first bird, it was like a wide-eyed vireo. Uh, I fell in love and I was like flipping through the pile guide, like helping him age the bird. And like, I was like, I was hooked. And then that was when I like went into the loggerhead strike project after that. Wow. Okay. So even, okay. I got to back up even a little bit more because you started thinking you were going to be a vet, right. Or you wanted to work with animals. So you thought the only option you had was to be a veterinarian. So how did you hear about all these experiences and opportunities with wildlife? Yeah. So, uh, I grew up, uh, hunting and fishing with my dad, but like at the time, like I said, I only thought like to work with animals, I had to be a veterinarian. Uh, in my junior year of high school, I went and got the tour, uh, a vet school and I went there and I just didn't really like it. I, I didn't, I knew I was going to be working inside a lot. It was a lot of like laboratory stuff. And I was like, man, this is not, this is not it for me. And so I had to like really reevaluate what I was going to do. And so, uh, my dad, what started it was my dad and I were watching a documentary one night about, uh, capturing snow leopards in Afghanistan and, uh, putting GPS collars on them for some data they were doing for that. And I was like, dad, I don't know what I have to do to do that, but I want, that's what kind of stuff I want to do. And he was like, well, let's like research it. So we started researching and I came, I found, came across uh, Colorado State's, uh, website about their natural resource program and wildlife biology. And so that was, where I was like, I'm going to go there. And so I got in there, uh, my senior year of high school and then, uh, found out tuition was, uh, insane and, then my cousin recommended the smaller school that I went to. And I ended up actually getting my degree for what I would have paid for one year at Colorado state. So like it, it just worked out really nicely. Um, but yeah, so it, that was the main thing. And the other thing that had kind of draw, drawn me to it was I had read some stuff about the wolf introductions in Yellowstone. Uh, and that was like another thing that had gotten me really interested in wildlife conservation. And, uh, that was kind of those two, the, the snow leopards and the, the wolf introduction were kind of where I was like, that's, that's the job I want. I don't know what I have to do to do that, but that's what I want to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I was happy. I, I, I knew I wanted to work outside too. That was my other thing. So that was a big part of it. Cause that was the main reason I decided I didn't want to be a vet. Yeah. And all that schooling. Yeah. Yeah. Too much, too much school. <laughs> Although I guess I've been in school about as long as I would have been now for a bit. <laughs> it all evens out. <laughs> so, okay. So you did your mini thesis, you graduated with your bachelor's. Um, then you got a partner. Yep. Then you got the program work with DNR, which in case you're listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with what DNR is, it's not, do not resuscitate. It's in this context, it's the Department of Natural Resources. And yes, many and different states have different uh, acronyms for it. Some all have, like several of them have DNR. Some of them are like uh, Fish and Wildlife Service or Conservation Department, something like that. Government funded. Right. So you worked part-time with Georgia DNR and what did, right. what did you do with them? Yeah, so I actually worked with uh, Henslow sparrows primarily, um, which are a, a grassland species of sparrow. They uh, breed up in like the Midwest area, but they migrate through Florida, Georgia, and uh, some of the coastal southeastern states. Oh, they don't and, even breed in Georgia or in Florida. Uh, they there might be a subpopulation that breeds in Florida. Oh, cool. Okay. I know that they I know that they breed primarily. It's like uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, up there in like the the, the mid Midwest. Okay. Um, but so they, so I, I did started work with them and my boss at the time at, at 
at the agency was actually super awesome. He was like very interested in just like getting me any experience I could. So when we weren't doing that, if I had any hours left over, cause I could only work those limited, like 29 hours, he would send me with other biologists doing things. So I got to go like on a week long helicopter survey for Sandhill cranes. Oh, cool. uh, I went, I went and surveyed for bald eagles in a helicopter too. I got to do some cannon netting of some shorebirds uh, off of the coast of Georgia uh, I got to go dip net frosted flatwood salamanders, which are an endangered subspecies of salamander here that are found in only in uh, Georgia. So it was it was a really awesome experience. Cannon netting, yeah, that's something I haven't done yet. Can Cannon you netting is uh, yeah, it's probably like my favorite thing ever. Uh, so it's a little different than like passive mist netting or anything like that. You have to like, physically bury the net like somewhere. So like a lot of times it's used coastally because we have the sand, uh, you can kind of bury it in the sand and on either side of the net, the net has some weights on the front end. Right. And on either side of the net, there is like a, a miniature cannon that has like uh, gunpowder or projectiles in it. And when uh, we, we there's an igniter button, you literally have to have a wire reach all the way from the cannons to like your boat or wherever you're hidden on the shore. And you'll have like a, 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 a detonation button that will detonate it. And what it does is it shoots, there's the weights are sitting inside the cannons, the weights of the nets, and it shoots the, the net over your target species. But the thing with it is you, you only have, you can only catch whatever's within like however long your net, long and wide your net is. Yeah. So like there's a specific zone that the, the animals have to be in, in order for you to be able to put the net out uh, because otherwise you won't catch anything. And there's also a specific zone called the kill zone that you can't detonate if there's a bird in that area because it'll kill them from the projectiles. So you it's very precarious. And like, there'll be times where you'll have 30 birds in the catch zone and one bird sitting in the kill zone and you can't, you can't detonate it. So it's, it's a very hard, and you can, you can go through all that work and then the birds not even come to that sandbar that day or something too. So it's, it's hard work, but it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's so funny. Cause I thought I just had pictured in my head, cannon netting is like, you know, it shoots like the a net gun or something. Yeah. And, and I was kind of like, haha, that's silly, but it really involves gunpowder. Yes. It, it's literally a projectile. And like you have, yeah, it's, it's insane. It's crazy. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was really neat. And like, a lot of times people do it with shorebirds because they're very habitual birds. So like they'll come to the same shell rake or same sandbar every day at like 9 p 9 a.m. So like we did American oyster catchers. So they the biologists would go out for like a week or two at a time and watch them every morning and get, figure out their pattern and then set up on that sandbar like two hours before they're supposed to get there. And then we all hide and you wait for them to hopefully come in uh, and, and try to catch them then. So it was pretty cool. Did you have to wear as much camouflage as we wore when we were catching cuckoos? Not quite as much. And luckily, so one time I've been on the shore and I actually got to be with the girl that hit the detonation button. And then the other time I was in the boat. So I didn't have to, you know, we, we will take the boats and kind of drive a little farther away and just let the person that's on the, the shore detonate. Uh, so that time I didn't have to wear anything, but on the shore, you, we did have to hide in some bushes and there was like sand gnats and everything. It was, it was about a two hour wait in the bushes, which was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of fun too. So you have such a good diversity of experiences. Do you have like a favorite experience or you, I, I won't say like, so my favorite, you're talking about like my favorite field, field work experience. Yeah, or something you're like most proud of, or that story that you want to tell people like when when yeah yeah so well so we've had one experience together that uh is one of my like defining moments in uh, my <laughs> career I feel like 
Uh, we call it the oak experience, but we had just gone to Texas and tried to start catching cuckoos. And we had been like out looking for them for about a week, I think at that point and had started, we had picked our first spot. We were going to try to catch them. And we bought those cannon or the not cannon, that's the uh, canopy nets. Uh, and uh, so for reference, canopy nets are really tall mist nets. Uh, a lot of times they're used for bat work. Uh, but for in this instance that we were using them for uh, birds that like to stay in the tops of the canopies of the trees. Uh, and we, put him up and a nice gust of wind blew through and blew it straight into this huge oak tree. And uh, these nets are really, really fragile. They'll, they'll rip extremely easily and they're expensive to replace. And our boss was, uh, was so upset and we were like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to try to get this down. So it took like, I think, was it like three or four hours of us out there? We were, we were using pole saws and just using the end of, not the saw end, but like the handle end to try to like push the, the branches out of the net. And I mean, it was like, it, it, that was the closest I've ever come to like a breaking point. I feel like like we were out there so long that I was just like mentally and physically exhausted. It started to get dark. I think and we were like, it was like almost nighttime by the time we finished it. Uh, and that was like our first experience putting up the net. So we were all like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a nightmare. Wow. How are we ever going to catch these birds? And I think that was like a really defining experience because once we got through it and we were able to like laugh about it, it was, it was fun. But, but at the time we were like, oh my gosh, this, this is, project's never going to work. And yeah. then luckily we, we found our groove, like the next day, I think we kind of started to figure it all out and we were able to start catching cuckoos like crazy. But that, that was like one of my favorite moments. I always like tell people about where I'm like, like, it was just so mentally and physically draining. And like, I didn't think we were going to be able to get the net out. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like, you know, sometimes mist nets can like brush up against a tree and then they'll like untangle themselves or kind of it won't get stuck for some reason this particular oak experience <laughs> like the this oak tree from hell where yes. it just got so caught up and all the little oh it my was, gosh it was, it was crazy and that was like yeah like you said one of our first weeks actually, I think it was the first week I think yeah uh, it was the first besides week. And it, I think besides and it, putting it up in the yard at the research station, I think that was the first time we had put it up in the woods. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, this is not, this is going to fail miserably. But it already worked a couple hours clearing that net lane. Like we thought we had it perfect when we put that net up. <laughs> it was, but it, like it taught us some mile good. in our gust just went right yeah. into that. Oh, that was it taught us some good stuff though. Like, I, I'm happy it happened then and not like when a bird was in the net or something, I guess. So it, it was probably for the better. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And plus, if we ever start a rock band, we have the, the oak experience. Oak experience. Exactly. I'm I'm still saving that as a band name. <laughs> so you have we have the time from the cuckoos. I think my breaking point from the cuckoos was when um we were doing stuff on Williams Island here in Tennessee. Oh yeah, we were camping for like three days at a time with no running water and. Uh, uh, gosh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I was pregnant. So yeah, I still don't know how you did that <laughs> to this day. <laughs> I was barely making it through, <laughs> but it was, it, yeah, that second, that last trip we had to go on where like we had to catch one more bird or, or like two more birds, I think it was, or we wouldn't have to come back there and we only caught one and we were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, we're going to have to come back and do this again. The unloading, uh, the reloading, the hauling yeah. all the equipment up the yeah. I don't miss hauling the canopy nets around. I know Callie's doing that this summer. That can't be fun. <laughs> I know, I know. I've been talking to her a little bit about their project. They're like in Oklahoma, I think, this year, mm -hmm. right? Oklahoma and Pennsylvania and someone Texas again. 
And you know, it's so funny because I'm going to go on a mini tangent, but I just went out to um, Francis and I want to pronounce it Francis Beadler, but I think he was pronouncing it Francis Beadler. I was working with Matt Johnson from um, Audubon, South Carolina. I just volunteered for the day and oh, awesome. to see them do prothonotary warbler work. And I mean, we're walking on these, the boardwalk. So it's above the marsh, it's above the swamp. And um, you don't have to walk, like hike through the mud and the muck and the pole setup is super lightweight and easy. They don't have, I mean, the prothonotary warblers fly right in the net. They barely yes. have to slide. Did you guys, did you guys use playback? Yeah, and, okay. and a decoy. And I was just like, wow, I wish catching cuckoos was this easy. It was so cush. Prothonotary so warbler reminds me of that house in Louisiana that we stayed at on our oh. way to Texas and that lady dropped the prothonotary warbler baby. Okay, we have to tell that story. I, that is so funny, especially because coincidentally, when we were driving down to Texas for this, the beginning of this field work, we stayed in the same Airbnb in Louisiana somewhere that, um, my former TA Thon Bovis and some of his Arkansas State University um, folks who actually study prothonotary warblers stayed at too. So this woman was like, oh, we just had some bird researchers stay with us not long ago. And we were like, what? No way. <laughs> and she had a prothonotary warbler um, nesting in her. In a little bluebird box on her porch. Yeah. And then what happened? I can't remember exactly, but we were like. She grabbed, the, she grabbed the box off to show us the, the prothonotary warbler nest and she knocked like two of the babies out of the nest and luckily they were fine they were okay and we managed to get them back in the nest and they were okay but yeah it was it, she was such a nice little like older lady and she was like from like the backwoods of Louisiana and her and her husband were just super nice but yeah that was yeah that was crazy it was so sweet but she was like so excited to show us and then these like babies were falling and we're like oh my gosh yeah that was yeah that was crazy <laughs> Oh, uh, ornithologists like don't leave them alone. It's okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So funny, funny field experiences. Um, so you've gotten like you've worked really hard, but you've also gotten really lucky with your experiences. Yes. Tell me about a little bit about like this balance of like luck versus hard work versus networking and how how it all combined to get you to where. And tell me where you are headed next after yes. your conservation policy. Fellowship. Yeah. So I think I mentioned it to you before, but like, I, I feel like I've been in like the series of fortunate events in terms of my career. Like it's been like one, like good thing after another. And so I got that job with the DNR originally, um, and then worked with them for a little while. And then I went and did the cuckoo stuff with you and I came back and did DNR again. And then I, uh, my, one of my old professors had told me about this position that I'm in now and was like, you would be a great fit. You should totally apply. And so I applied to that and I came in for an interview and I just really liked the guys over here. And um, this job though has been something completely different than what I've ever done. I've, I've learned how to do tractor maintenance and driven tractors. Uh, I've, I've learned how to weld. Um, I've done a variety of different things here that uh, all the burning I do, I help with some uh, red cockaded woodpecker work. Um, I, so I do a variety of stuff here. I, like it's been completely different and there's a completely different experience here. So but, but I would say it is a combination of sometimes of luck. I, I will say I've been lucky in that I haven't, I, even with my part-time DNR job, I did, I did serve on the side. I, I was a server at a restaurant. And so like, I have had to do some extra things here and there to make ends meet with all of that. Um, but I have been lucky enough that like all of the jobs I've taken so far have been paid to an extent that's been very helpful. 
Um, and then, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, then just, I think the connections and, and going somewhere and like knowing like everything you do is kind of your impression you're putting on people. And so, uh, like making those good impressions and going out and helping and doing that little extra mile, if you can, uh, it, it totally makes a big difference in, in what they're going to call and tell somebody else that you're wanting to go work for or whatever. It's been, it's been really awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely put in the hours. There's been times I've done 60, 70 hour work weeks. And I mean, it, it's tough. And there is like a, I think a portion of like sacrifice. I mean, you kind of have to put your personal life on the side sometimes or pets or family members or whatever. And just like, know that you are doing that. And that's like something I, I have been thinking about recently is like a lot of people will tell you, like you have to put in the time uh, just doing all that stuff and like working those crazy hours so that you can, so you don't have to work them in the future. Uh, and I do think that's kind of a stigma that like could eventually go away. Like, I don't think we need to be doing, making people work 60 hours to get like a good job in the future. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I've been lucky enough to work really and, and worked really hard. I think it's just been like the perfect combination. And so, uh, after here, I just recently on Monday got the word that I'm going to start working as a red cockaded woodpecker biologist in, uh, South Carolina. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. So it should be fun. It's not like my dream job, but it gets me in the door as like a biologist somewhere. And I'm going to get to go work with birds still. So by all means, I, I'm super stoked about it. It's going to be, it'll be a brand new experience for me. I'm going to be doing a lot of like policy work with like Safe Harbor um, and the oh, Endangered Species yeah. Act and stuff too. So that'll be a whole new realm for me as well. So I'm excited. Another set of skills to learn. Yes, yes. Anything you can do to like di diversify your resume for sure is like something I would say it would be a really good idea. I mean, I've worked with gopher tortoises and salamanders and I've worked with fire and tractors and all of that stuff and then a lot of bird work. So it's been a, a variety of different things that I've worked with. Yeah, yeah, you have a very full resume at only almost 24 years old not even 24 years old. So it's been, it's been crazy. <laughs> and knowing your, um, like knowing you as a person, you're part of the LGBTQ community. How has that, and you're a woman, so that's an, like, as women, we're just marginalized in society right. in general, which thankfully is changing, but how have your experiences, has it helped at all to say you're part of a marginalized group? Because more and more people are wanting that. Right. Um, um, so I do think, I mean, I, it's a funny like line to, to, to be on, like you, you constantly are like, if I say I am, does that, is that going to make someone not want to hire me? Like, because they are, are maybe not ex an accepting person or, right. or are they going to purposefully hire me, whether they think I'm the best candidate or not, because they have to meet some sort of like, like quota or, or something like that. Um, so it, it, the other the other thing I'll get to that in a minute, I guess, but, uh, it, it can be hard to like figure out when to, when to say it, when not to say it, when is like a good, uh, a good time to say it and everything like that. So one thing I think the hardest part for me is, is always like coming into a new job. So that that's like number one, like 
figuring out like you're never like done coming out to people when you're like uh, in the LGBTQ community because like right when you think everyone in your life knows you're either going to switch jobs or like new employees will come in and you have to like like tell all of them or you get a new supervisor or something like that it, it you're never done so starting like a new job somewhere it can be tough because you have to kind of feel everybody out like you don't want to hide who you are but you also don't want to like come out in a situation where it might not be safe for you um or or you might end up in a situation where they won't blatantly say anything bad about you, but maybe you'll get worse work assignments or something like that or anything like that. So that's a hard one to, to figure out. I've gotten really lucky in the sense that like everyone I've worked with as far has been absolutely amazing. I've had like a few awkward encounters here and there, but for the most part, like uh, it's been really, really good. All, all the people where I'm at now and previously have been amazing. Um, the other problem I like come across is putting it in like a, uh, a cover letter or like when you're looking for a job, like it'll, some, some jobs will say like, we're, we're looking like we will pr like prefer people of marginalized communities, which is awesome. Like they, they're trying to like diversify their, their folks at their place, but also that might just be put in there by HR and the people that are hiring that position don't actually want that. Or, um, uh, it can be tough because do you put it in there? Like, so do I put it in that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community in my cover letter? And then I get screened out of the job for that reason. Yeah. Or do I not put it in and then get there and everyone's homophobic and I am suddenly working with a bunch of people that don't like me or my, or my life. So it, I've actually gotten to the point where I will typically, uh, if there is a cover letter portion, I will kind of put some part about that, like that I am a member because to me, I'd rather get screened out and just not work there than go to somewhere and work with somebody who's not going to like me for me. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's another like tough component, I would say of, of the, this world. And like, luckily I think it's really weird. I think, but for the, the wildlife side of things, I feel like we're a, a fairly uh, open and accepting field. Uh, I think there are probably other fields where, where people come into that are not nearly as accepting, but uh, I, I feel for the most part, we all have like views on like environmental, uh, like in terms of polit politics, there's like, we all have similar like environmental views and stuff like that. And then usually they're typically more accepting in terms of like LGBT or, or, people of color working. And so it's been, it, it's been really, really good so far, but yeah, that's, that was like one thing I struggled with for the longest was like, do I put this in a cover letter? Do I not? Like, am I, am I trying to like pander to get a job? Like by using this as like my, my like reasoning to hire me, like I, it's, it's a very weird line. Yeah. It sounds also just so emotionally exhausting knowing how, how to navigate that. Right. That in and, right. In and of itself. Is yeah, this time, this time with the South Carolina job, I don't think I put it in my cover letter, but I, uh, like when I went up for my second interview, uh, I mentioned that I was, I, I went up and I actually did it in person like two a month and a half ago now. And I was on my way to Baltimore to drop off my girlfriend, uh, to her job. And so I just mentioned that I was with my girlfriend and we were driving up and like, kind of just throw it in like casually if I can. And just like, the only problem with that is sometimes people don't realize you're talking about like a significant other, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, for the most part, I just try to figure out when it's like appropriate and try to like throw it in there. So that in the interview, they knew I was, so if they don't want to hire me for that reason, then they won't. And I can just not work with them, but luckily it's been, it's been nothing but, but great. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear you've had positive experiences, especially in the South. 
Yes. Yeah. That's been a, that's been a, that, that was like one thing when I went to my school is like, it's in the middle of like Southwest Georgia. Like there's there, it's not the, you wouldn't consider it the most like accepting place probably in the world, but it was, it was very, very good. My wildlife program, all of the professors there were extremely amazing uh, and accepting. I've always been like really good. So it, you'd be surprised. I think there's like some stereotypes a lot of times about places or people and you'll be surprised at like the number of people that will like surprise you in like a good way. So it's, it is nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I want to respect our time. Um, we're yes, yeah. coming to the end a little bit, but I do want to pivot and ask you really quickly if you've ever felt, um, because one, one of the things Nova Conservation is trying to do is call out um, exploitation in this industry and right. not by name right here on this podcast necessarily, but we're providing reviews of organizations that maybe aren't so great to work right. with that don't pay fair wages or over exploit and overwork their interns and um, field technicians. So have you ever felt exploited or have you had a really good um, just string of experiences? And if well, let's start there. Have you ever felt exploited? And uh, yeah, so I never felt like um, I, I, for the most part, I think all of my jobs have been fairly good, great with that. Um, I will say, like, I mean, there are times that, like I mentioned before, like I do think that this, the the stigma of like you got to work really, really hard now uh, is like a way that they can like sometimes like people like this industry can buy you into work, working more than you're compensated. And that can be like a tough, a tough thing. Cause then you don't want to look lazy, but you also don't want to work if you're not being paid. I mean, like the whole point of a job is I give you these, I give you these uh, hours of my life in exchange for money so that I can survive and like doing all the extra work can be rough. Like sometimes it totally pays off or if it's something you're interested in and you want to volunteer your time to that by all means. But yeah, I do think like that, that stigma, I I've definitely ran into times where I've pulled some crazy hours. And I, I, at the time I didn't feel exploited and I still don't feel exploited, I guess, but definitely like, I think that stigma is something in the wildlife conservation world that like needs to be like addressed eventually. It's just like really hard to like know that you're going to have to put in 80 hours or something in a week uh, and not be paid, but, but for like 40 or whatever. So it's, it's pretty crazy. Sure. Yeah. Because this industry is so competitive. Yes. It's very competitive. You don't, you don't want to lose a foothold if you have one. I mean, it's it, yeah, it can be tough. And people can take advantage of that and be like, well, you got to work an extra 10 hours a week or we expect this from you. And you're like, well, yes, okay, yes, exactly. Get in. So yes. I, I am, I am encouraged to hear a lot of work um, in general, the um, essence of work is changing and as we evolve as a society. So I think that will trickle down into our sector, our industry as well. So that's yeah, and I think I think like the COVID thing might have helped too with like working from home. Like I think there's been some like data and stuff like like there's been data and different jobs that we have in our field that we could have been doing like more efficiently, maybe at our own houses or something like that. And 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 stuff like that can maybe eventually help with that too. And, and not having to work these crazy hours and always being at the, the office from this and this time and all of that. So yeah, that's a really good point too. I mean, COVID, yeah, has slowed things down. It slowed things down, but it's I think it's also it's a show how you can be more efficient from home sometimes, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, we were going through a pandemic, so no one needed to be efficient. We were going through something crazy, but uh, also it like showed that you can have Zoom meetings or like, like I know now like my friends and I that I had, that I made in an internship several summers ago, we had never talked really. And then during the quarantine, we all realized we could start hanging out over Zoom, like stuff like that where, where we, we, we've learned through the pandemic how to like work with uh, being at home or, or stuff like that can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what about an organization that you feel like has um, done really well with 
uh, not exploiting their workers or like I, I, as I've been talking to some of the members of our team, we're like there there are there are organizations out there that do really good work, but yet they're still failing and not failing, but falling short in this one area or this area. Right. They need to work on decolonizing or X amount, you know, diversifying. So what, do you have an organization in mind that like is ideal <laughs> in conservation or yeah. ideal? Yeah, I wouldn't say, so in my experience with like working with like the state here in Georgia, I know like with full-time employees, like you are not technically like allowed to work like more hours and you're, you're, you're supposed to be like compensated exactly for 40 hours. And if you have more than that, they give you this thing called comp time and you can use they you they record all of your extra hours that you do and it goes into like a system and you get that as like vacation hours basically wow. uh so so that's like something i think that is awesome like in terms of like a state agency doing that is like really great i know like where i'm about to go in south carolina is also doing it so for the most part my experiences in in that sector like state level has been very positive um i mean there's always like downfalls to that as well like i mean there's a lot of bureaucracy within the state or federal jobs so that's that's another problem but but in terms of like being a fair like employer this is your salary we expect you to work these hours not anymore unless like you were out on the field and it took longer and so we're going to give you those hours back in like vacation time something like that i think that's a really good uh, uh organization that i've seen yeah do some great things that makes sense that makes perfect yeah. it's a, it's a, a clear-cut um, expectations yes. and boundaries and i also love how like the jones center at itchua um specifically as a conservation fellow which you were lucky to get this position right um, but they pay for your masters which yes yeah so that this position's been great i mean uh it, it's paid I, I get a salary i get housing if i want it which i ended up not doing housing here because i have a dog and it was just easier to live off the site um but uh housing, uh, you get a retirement fund, you get health insurance, and then they pay for your master's too. So it's been, it's been a, it, a very, very good trade in terms of uh, working for, for this position has been amazing. It's been an awesome, awesome, like organization to work for. The Jones Center has been awesome. I can't reiterate just how fortunate you in particular have been. Yes. Like we were talking about, it's just not typical. In no, no, I would say it's not at all. I was, talking with my Dad. family about that. <laughs> you were talking with what? I was talking to my family about that. Like, I, I don't think I know any biologists at like a state level that are under like 30 years old and I'm about to walk in there. And I don't, that's intimidating. It's exciting, but also very intimidating and scary. And so like something like that will be very interesting like uh, to work through. I'll have to see what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've earned it. You've Thank earned you. it and I wish you all the best. Um, in your future job as a biologist in South Carolina doing red carcated woodpecker stuff. I'm planning to come out and visit you. Actually, I would yes. come visit uh, the Jones Center too at some point. Yes, yeah, we can. We, I definitely still want to try to set something up for that. And then, yeah, for sure, we can, you can come out and work with me doing some uh, red carcated woodpecker stuff. Sweet. Yes, for sure. Miranda, thank you for your time. Thanks for talking. It was a pleasure having you on our Nova Conversation podcast. Oh, before I forget, um, how can people find you on social media? That was my last, uh, that was the thing I keep forgetting to ask people before I wrap up. Where can Yeah, yeah. So uh, my Instagram handle is uh, M.M. Wilkes, W-I-L-K-Z. I can text it to you or whatever. And then my- uh, Notes too. Oh, perfect. And then my Twitter handle is Miranda in nature. Uh, so that's that's my Twitter and you can find me there and feel free if you, anyone has any questions or anything like that or needs advice, I'm 
always open on my social media platforms for all of that. So you're awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Laura. It's been a blast. It has been. It was really good reconnecting with you and good luck in the future. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet. Thank you.